Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box at thenocturnalreadersbox.com and be listening at the end of this episode as I give you a very special deal that they are offering only to Weirdo family members. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Dark. From the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed. Five years ago, my wife and I decided to take a weekend break. The hotel we chose was a hotel named the Barony Castle Hotel on the outskirts of Peebles on the Scottish Porter. The hotel itself lay in acres of land surrounded by forest. While getting dressed for an evening meal, my wife was sat at the dressing table while I was standing by the bed when suddenly the television, which stood on the other side of the room, switched itself on. It stayed on for a few minutes, then switched itself off again it did this about three times. Neither my wife or myself felt phased by this until the following morning while we were checking out. The receptionist said to us, Oh, I see you were in the haunted room last night. When we told her what had happened, she said the room was haunted by a maid who had once worked at the hotel. She said that others had reported being woken up by a lady who would stand at the bottom of the bed staring at them as they slept. Others had witnessed the TV switching on and off as we did. We didn't at any time feel threatened in any way, but in fact have visited the same hotel on many occasions. The Barony Castle Hotel can be googled, and the story of the haunting is there for all to read. about 10 p.m. in late June when this happened, and it really creeped me out. I live in Columbia in the countryside. I was forced one day to move my PC to our third-floor studio to get a better signal from the modem in our house. While I was setting up the PC, I noticed that my iPhone's iCloud storage was so large that it could not actually complete a backup. This made me spend the next half an hour clearing my phone of old junk I no longer used. Lastly, I began to erase old pictures that I didn't wish to keep anymore. I cleared almost all of the photos, leaving just the oldest ones. There, in the top row next to the very first photograph that I took with my phone of my dogs, was a really very creepy photo of a kid with black eyes just staring into the camera it was a very disturbing image. I have no idea where this picture came from. 
It was very old, and I think I would have noticed it earlier, but the photo seemed to have appeared from nowhere. I tried tapping on the photo to enlarge it and get a better look at it to see if I could discern anything else, but instead the photo app crashed. When I went back after the crash, the picture was gone, while every other picture was still there. I still have absolutely no idea where it came from. I didn't take the photo. I don't know anyone who would send me such a picture. This is not made up. It really happened, and it scared me to death. I spent the next hour and a half looking for any possible answer. I often think about finding that photo on my phone, and today I found this site and decided to post my story. It may not get posted, but it at least clears my mind. At least someone else knows about this. I learned about black-eyed kids a few years ago through some of these odd conspiracy TV shows that sometimes pop up in Discovery Channel and such, but I was never really convinced about it until that picture just popped up without any reasonable explanation. How did the photo get there? It makes me shudder to think about it. As a young teenager, I was very close friends with the son of a geologist. My friend and his family used to spend much of their vacation time in Oregon and California exploring the ancient caves. One year, they invited me to go with them. When we got to the caves, my friend's father told us to take a sweater and a flashlight because it was very cold and very dark inside the caves. Me and my friend came to the entrance of the cave and his parents and sisters followed. When we were walking through the cave, there was a bunch of these little cul-de-sacs to our left and right. I went with my friend into one. It was called Lucifer's Corner. We stayed in there for around five minutes, just looking around and realized that we were alone. Being stupid teenagers, we turned off our flashlights and stood in the pitch-black darkness of this ancient cave. You could not even see your hand inches from your face. This was kind of random, but I told my friend to say Bloody Mary three times. He did, and nothing happened. So we fired up our flashlights and headed for the exit. The caves were starting to get boring. Once you've seen one cave, you've seen them all, right? We back out into the daylight. We couldn't find his family, so we assumed that they were back inside the caves. My friend and I went back to the entrance, entered the cave, and walked through once again. We eventually came back to Lucifer's Corner, where my friend and I had been before. We noticed that there were three lit candles melted on the cave wall in the same spot where my friend had chanted the Bloody Marys. It didn't take anything else to make us turn around and bolt toward the exit. When we got outside, we were breathing heavily, trying to catch our breath. We were both trying to come up with an explanation of why the candles were there, but there just wasn't one. The first house we lived in was alive with spirits. 
My parents didn't like to mention it, but it was. I was probably four at the time when I first noticed it. We were having a family reunion at our house and had the whole family over. Lots of food, lots of play, and lots of fun to be had with my cousins. I remember being tired and wanting to go to sleep just when the sun went down, so I went to my room and fell asleep. The party was still going on downstairs. I woke up to someone knocking at my window, but it wasn't a polite knock. It was like pounding with urgency. I didn't think anything of it except that it was probably one of my cousins being mean or something. But the knocking hadn't stopped. It was just a constant knocking. I got out of bed to see who it was. I walked over to the window and opened my curtains, and while the loud knocking was still happening, there was no one there in front or on the side of the window. I remember breathing, getting really heavy and tears forming in my eyes. I couldn't move, I was so scared. Somehow I broke free of this paralysis and ran out to the living room, which was empty other than the TV being on, the clock on the wall that said it was almost 4 a.m. and my mother fast asleep on the couch. It definitely wasn't my cousins at that time. Another encounter took place around the same period. I woke up early in the morning while everyone was still asleep. I was making a bowl of cereal in the kitchen when I started to feel kind of weird. I opened the fridge door to get the milk and I looked toward the other end of the kitchen and saw a hand, just a hand, slowly fingering for me to come here. I did, right away as a matter of fact, thinking it was my dad, but when I turned the corner, no one was around. They were all sleeping still. There were other things that happened, but what I do remember strongly is never feeling alone. Even if I was home alone, the house would feel alive. I think a lot happened in that place, and I do believe some of it was not good. My encounter started like any other. Some kids came to my door. I was alone in the house playing video games when this long knock came to the door. I could see through the curtain on the door that it was just some kids, and living in a neighborhood with several families with kids, this was nothing out of the ordinary. Yet before I even opened the door, I began to feel extremely wary. I opened it to find two boys around 12 or 13 standing on my porch. The taller boy had knocked, the smaller had been straddling a bike. I found this odd that he was on my porch on his bike. He would have had to carry it up my front steps and instead of standing beside it, was sitting on it. At first they kept their heads down and I asked if I could help them. They said they just needed to come in for a minute and it wouldn't take long. I asked if they were from the neighborhood and they didn't answer me. It was about this time that I realized something wasn't right. They kept trying to get in and I kept telling them that they couldn't. They didn't get impatient or mad, they just kept trying to get me to invite them in. I felt that they were absolutely draining all the energy from my body. It was a battle. I can tell you without a doubt that yes, they are real. 
They are evil by nature and you do not want them around you, near you, or able to touch you. In October of 1971, some friends of mine told me about the old Confederate cemetery across the river from Fort Smith, Arkansas in the small town of Laveka. Trying to frighten me because I'm from Michigan, they challenged me to go to the cemetery on Halloween night. With me driving and my friends giving me the directions, off we went to Laveka to see the ghosts of the Civil War. The cemetery was right next to this small white church that we had to drive down a narrow lane between orchards to get to. There was a clock on a timer in the steeple that gonged for every hour. That Halloween night, when the clock struck 12, the clock gonged 13 times, not 12. When I looked over to my left at the grave markers, I and everyone else started to see a mist rising from behind the markers. Everyone was trying to get me to drive off. One of my friends said we had to leave. When I finally did try to drive off, the car didn't want to. Now, I'm no mechanic, but when a person puts her foot on the gas pedal and pushes it halfway to the floor of the car, the car should respond by going faster than five or six miles an hour. But that's what our car was doing. By this time, I had the gas pedal to the floor and the car was still only going five miles an hour. As I looked out the left driver's window, there was a ghostly shape of a Confederate officer floating next to my window with his right arm stretched out to me. I shook my head and yelled to him that I couldn't help him, and he dropped his arm and slowly started to move back from the window. When I looked over to the right, there was another ghostly soldier floating along there. In the rearview mirror, I could see at least three or four old soldiers there with their hands on the trunk of the car. About that time, the front wheels touched the pavement of the road between the orchards we were in and the orchards across the road from us, and the car shot out from under me. I had to do some fancy driving so we wouldn't hit one of the trees now in front of us. We didn't. When I looked up, we were now facing the other lane we had just left, and we could see the ghostly soldiers floating back into the cemetery. The next year, 1972, I tried to get someone, anyone, to go back with me to the old cemetery. No one would go with me to see if the ghosts would reappear. I returned to California in September of 1973, and as far as I know, no one else has gone back to that old Confederate cemetery. The Impusa originally appeared in the mythology of classical Greece as a frightening female monster. She is the demonic vampire without shape of its own, but with the ability to appear in many different animal guises and as a beautiful, tempting young woman. Modern-day Greek folklore still speaks of the Impusa, who enters the body of its human prey, particularly children, 
to consume the flesh and blood of its victim. She loves to eat young and beautiful bodies and drink their blood because it's strong and pure. The monster thrives in water and on land, so they tend to dwell along the coast. Lurking on the darkened roads at night, Ampusa seeks its prey. Ampusa represents the Grecian form of a vampire. In the Greek myth, this female demon is usually described as having one prosthetic leg made of brass and the other leg of a donkey. From the waist up, Impusa is a human-like creature with hideous blemishes and blotches on her skin. She was said to have been the daughter of the goddess of witchcraft, the night, moon, ghosts, and necromancy, Hecate, and was sent by her to torment people, especially travelers. Ampusa, the shapeshifter, changes its apparition into an animal or to a beautiful woman. She lures it over to drink its blood and consume its flesh. An ancient story about a 25-year-old man of Lycia, Menippus, who is a smart, handsome, and exceptionally well-built man as an athlete, relates an encounter with this evil creature. One day, as Menippus walks along the road, he is met by an apparition, an impusa, in the guise of a foreign woman. She is the Phoenician, and under her spell, he falls in love with her, unaware of what she really is. They make plans to marry. Apollonius is rather skeptical of her. He attends the wedding and is introduced to her by Menippus. This very rich woman is the mistress of all the servants. Hearing this, Apollonius tells Menippus that his wonderful bride is nothing but a vampire who, like others in her race, loves to devour the flesh and blood of its victims. Menippus's bride is offended and orders Apollonius to leave, but his words have already broken her spell, and all the gold, silver, and the servants vanished. Pretending to weep, the Apusa begs Apollonius not to force her to confess what she really is but he does. Finally, she admits she usually chooses her victims among young and beautiful people to dine on them and Menippus is one of them. Belief in this evil monster persists into modern times. Present-day shepherds blame her for accidents that happen to their animals, claiming that she suddenly appears, hurts them, and disappears again. Later tales describe a whole race of these monsters, the Impusa, living on the North African coast in Libya. The Impusa is the early Greek term for the later Latin term Lamaya. Over the ages, the descriptions of Impusa changed considerably and were often confused with Lamaya. Ancient people believed that the only defense against these monsters was abusing them verbally or shouting insults. As a result, they screamed and fled away. Except for the Greek account of Impusa, the same awful creature is known in other ancient cultures of the Mediterranean region. So, three friends and I decided we were going to camp out in this 30-acre sanctuary down the street from my neighborhood. It's paralleled by railroad tracks and a road on one side, 
and then a small road on the other side. There's a lot of forest and trails, but also these big sand dunes and a huge lake that's pretty deep. So deep, we can't see the bottom. And in Florida, there's always stuff to worry about, like mosquitoes at night and spider webs along the wooded paths. Snakes, thankfully, left us alone. Now, understand, when I say three friends, I mean two friends and sort of my friend's uncle. So that's Brandon, Dalton, and Mike. Brandon is cool when it comes to nature and a survivalist guy. Dalton's my best friend and he's funny, but can get freaked out as easily as me. Then there's Mike, the horrible uncle with the shit-eating grin that you'd never let your kids hang out with. He is awesome. We settled on three nights, so we got ourselves a big tent and brought two coolers worth of stuff out there. The sun's high up in the sky and there's no clouds anywhere to be seen. It was a lovely day in autumn, which meant it wasn't nearly as hot as Florida sounds like. As we unload our truck at the front of the trail, we kind of had to hide the truck because there are no trespassing signs in a few places, but I see people out here occasionally, so I think it more or less was a dumping warning. We noticed that there are absolutely no footprints this time. I thought that was odd, but Mike just drew a dick in the sand. So as we're walking out there, Brandon is explaining that this area used to be home to the Ayas tribe that was fond of East Florida. It was interesting to listen to because apparently they built both mounds and thatched huts and stuff like that. Mike asked us if we'd ever heard of a banshee. To this, I sort of facepalmed and Dalton laughed. Mike even chuckled and said he'd keep it for the night. We lugged our stuff some ways, passing a few retention ponds and an open area towards the railroad crossing and had a drainage ditch on the other side. The trail ran down pretty far until it turned into a huge scrublands area that then turned into another scrubland cut off by huge trees. You know, the kind of huge tree that's so thick you can't tell if it's just now popping out of the ground or not. I always thought the place was cool, but I wasn't sure how I'd feel being there overnight. We passed the big trees and it opened up into a shaded place with pine leaves forming their own little hills and then the huge sand dunes hugged by the Floridian forest. Then, just touching the right tip of the place, was this body of water we nicknamed Willow Lake. Most of the place was either sand or little shrubbery pushing up out of it, and right along the banks of the lake was a downed telephone line God knows how old. We decided to lug our stuff up the side of the dunes because they turned into some secluded trails. We found the opportune location, too. It was a huge open area of sand with a patch of tree jutting up on the outskirts from the left side of the entrance, and then all wood on the right side spare for a small path that seemed barely beaten. This is where we would set up shop. Within the hour, we had the huge tent up and Brandon went off with Dalton to collect some firewood. Florida's really bad on that part, so we'd use palm fronds to get the fire going and use actual wood to keep it burning. Good thing to know in Florida because the Skeeters hate thick smoke. Since I was at the campsite with just Uncle Mike, he brought some gin and popped it open. I'd never had alcohol in my life and I was just now 18, so I knew he'd try to have me drink some. Sure enough, here you go, Rob. 
I told him no, naturally, but my own curiosity was getting to me. I knew Dalton would jump at the chance to drink some gin or mountain bush, and I knew Brandon would side with me. I told him to wait until the others returned. That way I'd at least have someone to agree with. That's when we heard it the first time. A wail that sounded like it came from at the base of the dunes. It was so close the hairs on the back of my neck were livid for seconds. Mike just laughed and cupped his hands. Will you silly nanny stop playing in the sand? Just as he had said that, Dalton stepped out of the woods, firewood in arms and into the campsite to ask what all of that was. Mike and I asked him where Brandon was and he thumbed over his shoulder that he was still carrying some palm fronds with him. You mean you weren't the ones who just made that wailing down there? Mike asked him, folding his arms together. Mike, I'm being completely serious right now. You'd know if I was fucking with you. Mike sighed deeply and told him to bring Brandon back to the camp. He turned to me. Rob, you're coming with me. I looked awkward and asked him why, since I wasn't used to being entirely alone with the guy. Because if this turns out to be Dirty Mike and the boys, I need someone to trip so I can get away. So I went with him. We walked down the sand dunes, having to pick our feet up because of the sand. And when we got to the bottom, we did a scan of the area. Honestly, the only thing that had changed was the position of the sun and the brightness of the horizon. It was now dusk, barely dark, but getting there. I turned to Uncle Mike, who was rather puzzled himself, and asked him what he thought it was. He just said it had to be a Tyrannosaurus in heat. I couldn't help but laugh at that. Mike was definitely the comic relief of us, but even he looked a little concerned. He said he brought the machete for woodcutting, but told me it was inside the tent near the back, if I needed it. We shrugged the whole thing off after that and swapped some stories around the campfire. Thankfully, the mosquitoes were nowhere to be found. Brandon continued to tell us more about the location and how the Aes were also hunter-gatherers. That meant they didn't farm or grow anything, but they hunted animals and gathered resources to survive. Dalton told us about some of the spooky stories he'd read online late at night, and for the most part, some of what he told us was genuinely spooky. Mike even contributed by telling us more about the banshees and how they wailed and the person would always die nearby, but that sounded rather vague. Mike opened his mouth and screamed horrifyingly after the silence settled in, and Brandon was shaking his ass off. Of course, we all laughed at him and told him the banshee was going to get him. Yeah, the rest of the night consisted of Mike fucking with Brandon. There was even one moment in the tent where Mike told him, Calm down, Brandy. Banshees only show up when there's a flash of light. After a few seconds, Mike lightly held down the button on the flashlight and Brandon screamed. The next day we woke up and went about our business of taking a piss off in the woods or going down to the lake just to enjoy the morning breeze, but I noticed something odd. Upon walking down the reclusive hill, there was something amiss in the dunes themselves. I saw our footprints, which were hugely distorted due to the sand, and then I saw what appeared to be deep impressions, like something on all fours had bolted up the hill or down it. They were just so perfect that it couldn't be real. I'm paranoid about these things, so 
I constantly had my eyes glued to the trails that we came from and others we hadn't checked out yet, which I knew if we were, I'd be bringing Brandon or all of them along. I really didn't feel like going alone after the whale yesterday. I sat on the downed telephone pole to wash my face off from the water, and that's when I noticed it. Mike's bottle of gin, still half-filled like he left it, just dropped in the sand in front of me. I blinked blankly, figuring Mike must have wandered out last night or early in the morning and drunkenly left it there. I went back to our spot where Dalton brought more wood to and asked Uncle Mike about his bottle. He tilted his head and asked me where I found it. I told him down by the lake. He told me to stop fucking with him. You didn't get up early in the morning and take it down there? He told me no, but I raised my eyebrow at him. So you weren't hammered? I sounded like an idiot, sure, but knowing Mike, he could be hatching some kind of prank on us as we spoke. Bottom line was he said he didn't move it, so I just gave him the gin and sat down at the camp. It was pretty lazy for the rest of the morning. All we did was eat some of our canned stuff and decided which trails we'd go down. Naturally, since the place we were at is connected to an actual nature park, we thought we'd try seeing if we could reach it, so we chose the path going around the side of Willow Lake. Mike stayed behind and made some phone calls while we went out there since animals could have gotten into our shit if we just left it. This little dirt road had the retention ditch adjacent to it, with big tilapia swimming freely and at least a 12-foot stumble if someone tripped, and boy, it was far. By 2 p.m., we'd probably walked at least three miles or so, and I could barely believe that myself. The place was supposed to be 30 acres, and the fact that this trail rarely curved or made a turn bothered me at how far we'd gotten from the sand dunes. The only thing we had here were jagged trees and overlying canopy of Spanish moss and the just barely audible noise of the highway, so we weren't entirely that far from civilization. Our big problem now was that the path split into three. They all looked the same, spare for the center being riddled with pine needles. So we went down the mid-path, figuring less sand meant easier walking. The wail again from yesterday. As soon as I heard it in front of us, I teared up. Consider myself a pussy, but I knew it wasn't Mike screwing with us. There was no way he could have been ahead at this rate. Brandon was giving us worried looks, but he brought out his six-inch knife and Dalton told me to lie low. We were all speaking so softly that it was almost surreal. Brandon, though, easily spooked, seemed so calm here. He slowly went ahead, minding where he put his footsteps because the pine needles didn't actually make too much of a noise. So while he slowly progressed 20 yards ahead of us, and also remembered that the trail is pretty isolated in the forest at this point. Dalton and I covered our six. We noticed something really strange just lying off to the hedge of the pine-needled path. I wanted to say no, I wanted to deny every ounce of it, but there was no denying the fact that an unopened can of mountain bush was right here, far from our camp. The damn thing still had precipitation on it. I told Dalton I was really fucking scared right now, and he nodded and nudged me towards Brandon. 
We decided we'd head back to the camp and tell Mike about it. Something entered our peripheral vision. A blurring mix of gray and white ran from one side of the path to the other. One thing I remember definitely were three bony fingers on each hand passing through the bush and leaving nearly no trace that it was there. I've never seen Brandon hop to his feet and sprint as quick as he did, but we were all on our feet. As a matter of fact, I've never seen my own two feet work like they did. We forgot taking the can back and just ran as fast as we possibly could back to the lake. And we didn't stop there. We ran up the sand dunes, nearly collapsing because of the thick sand, and shouted for Mike. Mike wasn't there. Are you freaking kidding me? I thought. We shouted for Mike for several minutes, looking all around. Brandon checked the cooler and did a count of our stuff while Dalton kept pacing back and forward, calling Mike on his phone. What are you sissies screaming about? Mike answered from the phone. We found out he'd walked back to the truck to go to the 7-Eleven down the road, but he told us he was pulling back up. He asked us if we were really going to pussy out of our only time together over break, and we decided we would just meet him at the front and tell him what happened. Screw staying behind at the camp, none of us were man enough to do it after what we just witnessed. We made our way back past the two large trees and down the long trail until we found Mike walking up with a bag of potato chips and some water. He thought our expressions were hilarious but asked us what was going on. Once we told him, he was almost in disbelief. Mike asked us if we took his machete, and I answered no. He told us we should consider knowing where it is if we seriously saw something. The rest of the day consisted of us staying near the tent, not really going anywhere alone anymore. We had all stepped down near the lake because Dalton and I started goofing around. We were wrestling, causing a huge dust cloud from rolling down the dunes. Mike loved it because I was being so desperate to kick Dalton's ass, yet I wasn't built like he was. And Mike, seeing another opportunity to mess with Brandon, did the banshee cry yet again. Only this time, off in the distance. The same wail from before answered him. We all looked at each other and said, what the fuck? At nearly the same time. This was when Mike stood up and scanned the perimeter, making his own checks of everything. See, Rob, this is why you need to get your concealed weapons permit, he said, walking down to help us up. When I asked him why, he answered, you really think I'm allowed to carry a gun? We weren't very talkative the rest of the night. We sat around the campfire, paranoid, tried roasting some marshmallows and playing some music from our cell phones, but it was hard to shake the feeling that we were under surveillance. You know, like there could be big red eyes somewhere, just watching, waiting. Mike kept his machete by his legs, and Brandon had taken his own knife and carved the end of this long stick to make a spear. This is how spooked we really were. There was something out here, and we were alone. Look, guys, if you really want to just get the fuck out of here, we can. I'll, I'll just drive us back to Rob's place. At that point, we were all ready to get up and go, so there were no objections. Some camping trip this turned out to be. Mike stood up and lit a cigarette for a few moments, then muttered profanities to himself. He turned to us with a half grin, half frown. You guys are going to hate me. I, I think I dropped my car keys. Of course, we all gawked and asked him if he was serious or if he was just messing with us. Because, of course, Mike's been known to do that, but 
he was serious. He fanned out his pockets and checked all over camp using his cell phone as a light. So that's really it. We were fucking stuck here unless we wanted to walk the whole way back to my house. And frankly, we were tired and our hearts were still pounding from earlier. We just wanted to dig in and hold until daylight. We cut this trip short, making it two days instead of three. So we all huddled like frightened animals in the middle of the tent. That primal fear kicked in of being exposed or being towards the outside of the tent. Mike slept next to his machete, keeping his shoulder on it. Brandon and I couldn't sleep, and Dalton drank some of Mike's gin to try and keep him from sleeping. Brandon was petrified and told me not to close my eyes. His paranoia made it harder on my own, and we kept ourselves up for as long as I can remember. We heard the mosquitoes on the outside of the tent. We heard some splashing down near the lake, and we heard a train horn eerily pass by. It must have been three hours before we finally started settling in. I was about to bury myself in my sleeping bag when my ears sprang alert. There was a thumping of sand being thrown around. It was getting closer and more to our ground level. I dared not sit up, but I started to tear up once more. That thing was bolting up the hill and into our campsite, just like it probably did the night before. I held my breath as the thing's heavy breathing passed on my side of the tent. Its footfalls weren't too powerful. The thing appeared like it was trying to sneak around. It also slowed down now that it was on even terrain. Now I couldn't help it. I turned slowly and silently to see Brandon's eyes completely open, staring straight at me. He was shitting bricks so bad, but I wasn't going to call him out on anything. This was horrifying, and I really thought about the possibility that this monster could kill us with those long, bony fingers. While it sulked around the camp and went through our cooler, I nodded toward Mike's machete. Brandon tried to take it, but Mike was too heavy, so we had to wake everyone up. I brought a hand out and suggested prodding Mike with his stick, so we did. Mike quietly groaned, but we covered his mouth. Before he could object, we heard the cooler spill and all the shit pour out. The thing outside grunted and its heavy breathing panicked for a moment before subsiding. The thing's fingers were tapping on the insides and it lapped up the water like a big dog would. Mike wanted to whisper, but we frantically shook our heads against the idea. So instead of talking, he mouthed stuff to us. It was hard to understand him, but he reluctantly spoke, wake up Dalton, sit up slowly. We all remained silent, for the night around us had as well. We were almost terrified that it heard him. I couldn't stop shaking as if I got the chills, but we were reassured that the thing was still there because it started digging in the sand for some reason, and the sand smashed against the outside of our tent like we were being pelted with tiny pebbles. We pushed on Dalton's shoulder and he muttered, what? Mike sat up and held the machete ready because the thing outside stopped digging in the sand. We clasped our hands over his mouth and whispered into his ear to sit up slowly, which he did with uneasiness. The thing was casting a shadow over our tent now. It was just taller than Mike, who was prime in that category here. Like a grizzly bear or something, it stood to full height to observe the tent. It had to be at least 10 feet away, right against the heavy forest. And since we were all on our knees inside the tent, we weren't even half of its height. 
Uncle Mike raised the blade, his own tattooed hands shaking. The monster moved its legs and stalked towards our tent. It extended an arm to poke the tent, running its delicate fingers across the fibers. Its breathing pushed in on the tent and out. The shadow gradually turned and its hands ran over the entrance, particularly along the zipper line. I was literally holding Dalton's hand in a complete maternal instinct. This was real. This was a real nightmare, a story you'd read or a movie you'd watch, and I was in the middle of it. My heart was pounding so hard that I could not only hear it but feel it in every ounce of my body. He could feel it too as he squeezed my hand. Even Brandon, who was sitting by himself, was literally losing his shit in the calmest way imaginable. Because if we weren't calm, I thought we'd be dead. The fingers finally found the zipper. It fiddled and experimented with it, and the thing looked like it had difficulty understanding. It pulled out on the tent, moving us a few inches. Then it pulled up, started unzipping the tent. It was halfway unzipped when Mike struck. He lunged out at it, swiping the thing across its arm and the monster letting out a shrill that could boil blood. We all screamed, seeing the thing roll around in the sand with Mike grunting to stay on it. They knocked over the ash pile and the partially burnt bonfire and dust was in the air everywhere. It was horrible because we didn't know what to do. We were sitting here watching my best friend's uncle fight off a creature with his blade and we weren't sure who was winning. I don't even remember much of the fighting. I just recall being petrified at the skeletal humanoid monster that in the middle of this fight had glowing yellow eyes and snarled like something neither from hell nor earth. Brandon took both Dalton and I by the arms and ushered us down the hill. Dalton didn't want to leave Mike, but Brandon said tough shit and told him we were going to dig in. I reminded him that this thing was six feet tall and fast, but it didn't matter to us anyway. We were in the sand dunes, in pitch black, and there was absolutely nothing keeping it from bolting down the dunes and ripping us apart. We saw them hurtling down the hill, Mike literally punching the thing now with his fists. He didn't even have the big knife in his hands anymore until I noticed it was protruding from the creature's gut. And what's worse is the thing was digging its claws into his shoulder. It looked damaging, like someone dragging a dissection tool across the skin. In their struggle, the thing must have rocked back and forth because his neck was pretty diced. Now with Mike bleeding from his neck, we really knew we had to do something or else he could die or we could all die. So Mike groaning from his pain finally kicks the thing off of him and stands up. He's literally dripping blood down his shoulders. The creature, on the other hand, just sits there, its body churning inwards and outwards, catching its breath and recuperating. We all hauled ass, fuck everything back at the camp. The sand made it difficult to sprint, and that made things even scarier. The thing could lunge and snatch any of us at the rate that we were going. It was like trudging through heavy snow. Thank God for Brandon's heritage. He told us how the Mohawk Indians ran. He suggested that we run their way or stick to the side of the path once we got back on it and it would keep us from sinking into the dune. We were at the bottom when it wailed and we heard it charging after us. It was already flying for all I knew from the adrenaline pouring into my veins. The sound of breaking glass shocked me, but I didn't stop running. I ran faster than any of them. I passed the two big trees and got out of the shrubbery, and I passed the second large lake and I reached the truck. I had covered the distance so fast that my chest was about to explode from pain. 
My asthma was acting up, but I started having trouble breathing. I didn't even bring an inhaler because I hadn't used it in so long. I found Mike's keys on the ground next to the car tires and just grabbed them. I couldn't do anything right now with my heart pounding and my lungs in anguish. I didn't even realize I left anybody behind in the dust, and frankly, the only thought on my mind was the horrible creature. A few moments later, Dalton and Brandon came hauling Mike over and put him in the back seat of the truck. I gave them the keys and, without them asking me if I was all right, got in the truck and Dalton took the wheel. We turned on the truck and its engine revved up. The headlights came on and the yellow eyes reflected while it continued crawling for us. Dalton shouted the Lord's name and put his foot down on the pad. We ran the thing over, causing a huge thump. After that, we backed all the way out of the trail and, without paying any mind, we sped off down the roadways to the nearest hospital. Mike was in ICU for days until they managed to save him. As for us, well, we told our folks what had happened. They thought we were all dropping acid. They wouldn't let us see each other or Mike for months until some hiker got killed out in the place we were at. The whole city was in panic over this fiasco and nobody wanted to leave their homes. No other killing happened. The police did a huge sweep of the nature park and although they did find the remains and everything we reported, they found no creature, not even the blood. The mayor's response was to completely seal off the nature park and the 30 acres beside it, and the city made it illegal and punishable by fine to enter anywhere around it. I finally got to ask Mike what happened only a few months back. He told me the breaking glass was his bottle of gin with his last sip he'd been saving against the thing's face, said he cut it up pretty badly. I've never set foot in the forest down here ever since. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Backdoor Fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. You can find links to all of the stories in this episode in the show notes. This episode of Weird Darkness was brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box, now an official sponsor of Weird Darkness. If you're a horror fan, you'll love it. As a subscriber to the Nocturnal Readers Box, every month you'll get at least two horror books, one new release and one previously released title. You'll always get a bookmark and a custom art print that is only available in the Nocturnal Readers Box. These are not shiny, glittery quotes. They are actual artworks commissioned per the theme each month. They always have seven or more items in the box every month, too, often more. And if you subscribe now, you'll get the May Nocturnal Readers Box themed Who Made This Bloody Effing Mess, featuring items inspired by Joe Lansdale, Robert McCammon, Anne Rice, Richard Lehman, and a very special wearable that you don't want to miss. Subscribe today at thenocturnalreadersbox.com, and there's a special deal just for you, my weirdo family. You can get 15% off your first subscription up to six months by using the promo code WEIRD15, all one word, no spaces, WEIRD15, that's WEIRD15. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com, that's thenocturnalreadersbox.com, or click the link in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.
Comcast Business gives you the bandwidth you need to power all your devices. Get started with 200 megabit internet and voice for $99.99 per month. And for a limited time, we'll upgrade your speed to 300 megabits for no additional cost for the first year with a three-year agreement. Call 1-800-501-6000 today. Comcast Business, beyond fast. Offer 3120 restrictions apply, not available in all areas. New business customers only limited Comcast Business Internet, 200 megabits per second and one voice mobility line. Regular rates apply after first 12 months. Three-year agreement required. Early termination fee applies. Equipment taxes and fees extra subject to change. Monthly service charge increases by $10 without paperless billing and auto pay.